The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. If you don't know what an insider threat is, maybe you work outside of government or maybe you work outside of industry because insider threats are certainly a hot topic that a lot of folks are talking about. And so in that vein, I'm very pleased to have with us Dr. Eric Lang. He is the director of DOD's Personnel and Security Research Center. He's written extensively about insider threats, including a recent paper about seven science based recommendations for understanding and countering insider threats. So to talk about this white paper and other things, he is here joining us today. And so thank you so much, Dr. Lang, for being on the show. Thank you, Lindy. I really appreciate being able to talk to your audience. And if they have any questions or feedback afterwards, I'm sure they'll be able to find me. I should say that anything I cover in this podcast my opinions and not necessarily the positions or plans of any part of the government. When we think about insider threats, I think the high profile names are what comes to mind. But insider threats are certainly far beyond those headline cases. Why are insider threats bigger issues than just kind of the hot topics that you might hear about in the news? You're exactly right. Many people think of the big classic malicious insiders like Robert Hansen. And of course, those kinds of insiders do tremendous damage. The truth is those are very rare events. And research shows that the most common type of insider event is a non-malicious insider. So these are people who unintentionally create a vulnerability or a spill because of negligence, bad training, poor motivation, what's called bad cyber hygiene or reliability problems due to things like stress or alcohol and drugs. They just don't follow security rules and they create a vulnerability. So that's the most common type. And because we are in a world that is so connected by information systems, they are creating tremendous kinds of security spills and vulnerabilities. And in fact, the second most common type is still not the malicious Robert Hansen types, but what we call non-malicious, but intentional. So these are insiders, employees who mean well, but they bend or break security rules for things like trying to help their supervisor. So it's those non-malicious insiders that are creating the biggest problems. Yeah. And you bring up such a good point when it comes to these issues. I mean, the data compromise and the risk to national security, it exists regardless of the motivation behind the person doing it. We think about these folks, maybe the ideological motivations or things like that, but it really doesn't matter who's compromising your network. If there's an insider there who's able to get data or breach information, we need to have a lot of different systems set up. Because it's always a human, we just need to pay more attention to human factors 
issues. Technology will always be important, but we're just not paying enough attention, particularly the non-malicious insiders that are causing those vulnerabilities. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. One of the things that you have discussed in your research and writing before is kind of the increased risk for insider threats caused by remote work. But why is remote work potentially opening up more vulnerabilities? What's happening with remote work is that people are blending their IT use. They're using more personal devices as part of their work. And in many cases, the employers may not have provided effective or secure IT equipment. 62% of individuals do not follow security protocols as closely at home. And then, of course, for malicious employees, being at home, it's much easier to steal or print or store intellectual property because of they're working out of the privacy of their own home. And that's being borne out in statistics as well. When we look at insider criminal prosecutions, 75% involve remote workers. Whoa, I had not heard that before. You've written an article about the seven science-based commandments for countering insider threats. Certainly, it's a great article, great information there. Check it out if you haven't already. We don't have time to unpack all of them, but what are a few of the takeaways for those working in or around national security about some of those science-based commandments around insider threat? That's a great question. I would have answered it one way right after I wrote the article, but I'm an empiricist, so I'm going to answer it a different way based on the feedback I've gotten because it's been downloaded or shared over 2,000 times, and I've gotten a lot of feedback. Individuals who read it resonate to two of the six commandments. The second most popular one is the one on mental health, and it really highlights that organizations, despite putting out appropriate policy still have too many people at all levels, front level managers, all the way up to senior leaders who have bad assumptions and myths about mental health. For example, that a mental health condition greatly raises the risk that the individual will be violent. And that's simply not true. And statistics and research based on decades of work by the American Psychological Association shows that violence risk is really small and pretty much comparable to the violence risk of other people who don't have mental health conditions. The other mental health myth, if you will, is if you have a condition or you got treatment, that it will very likely result in a denial or revocation of a security clearance. And again, that's simply not true. And the statistics from the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, who does the adjudications, most of the adjudications, shows that just a tiny, tiny fraction of 1% of individuals who have what's called a guideline I or psychological condition will result in a denial or revocation. I think DOD and DCSA in particular, ODNI as well, they have really pushed the mental health, you know, reducing stigma issues and saying like the best thing you can do is be proactive around mental health issues. I think that's a key takeaway. Like if you have the biggest issue and security vulnerability is for somebody who potentially has issues, whether it's mental health or finances or anything else and doesn't actually treat them. So mental health is one example of that. And this actually ties ties into my next question around continuous vetting. Lindy, I want to expand on that because you made a great point. 
preventing it through the right messaging is important because, as I just pointed out, if you have a mental health condition or you're getting treatment, that almost never will result in a denial or revocation. However, because of the stigma, some people either will not get the treatment they need, which means they're in a sensitive position and and getting worse, or they'll get treatment and lie on their standard Form 86, the personnel security questionnaire. Having a conditioner getting treatment won't undermine your security clearance, but lying on a government form will, and some people lose their clearance because of that. But you hint at another important factor, which gets at the most important commandment. The most feedback I've gotten is actually on the seventh commandment, the one that deals with organizational culture. And you kind of intimated that because you can put out the right mental health policies But then you have to follow it up with real in-person communication and developing the psychologically safe and organization culture that it's healthy. And that seventh commandment is all about how organizations in the government, outside the government, still aren't doing that well enough. And that's where a lot of the feedback I've been getting is just resonating and people are saying, yeah, we have to do better on organizational culture, particularly how we train the frontline supervisors. We talk a lot, especially at clearance jobs, about the role of the security officer in this, but you're bringing up the frontline supervisor. We've had a lot of commentary and thought around insider threats and kind of really presenting how it is a whole company issue. It is a senior leadership issue. It is a frontline supervisor issue. Can you speak to that? It's not just a security function and probably the best people to address insider threats or identify them or help see issues in their workplace aren't always going to be the security officers because they don't always have visibility on everybody across the organization. You're exactly right. Human behavior is ambiguous. And so, you know, we have indicator lists and rules about what should be reported, but it's all about follow-up. And the research shows more often than not, it's not a true security issue. It's an HR issue. Someone has, you know, some acute stress. They need some help and support. So, you know, one of the bottom lines is HR and security really need to work together and communicate. And it's all about teamwork between HR and security and the proper follow-up of, you know, someone who surfaces with a flag or an indicator and getting them the right help. Because more often than not, it will be an HR issue, not a security issue. And also ties into this is definitely continuous vetting, continuous evaluation. You mentioned continuous vetting and one of your commandments that you wrote about in your article. Do you think our current CV programs are sufficient to answer the issue of continuous evaluating clearance holders and identifying some of these issues that come up? I think the jury's out on whether it's sufficient. It's certainly improving. It's moving in the right direction. And of course, to be transparent, I'm a proponent because uh, Perserec did the original work on continuous evaluation, continuous vetting back in the 1990s, and we produced the automated continuous evaluation system, ACES. And that prototype and proof of concept laid the foundation for Mirador and the continuous evaluation, continuous vetting that we're getting now. So about 4 million, over 4 million people are currently enrolled in some form of continuous vetting, and it's, it's more than just clearance holders. So we're certainly moving in the right direction. I think it will be inextricably tied to what's called Trusted Workforce 2.0. That's not fully implemented. And when it is, 
The vision is to have a very integrated system through NBIS, the National Background Investigation Services, that will tie it all together. So I think we need to wait for all that integration to mature and then evaluate the program and answer your question about whether it's sufficient. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one piece of the puzzle that we see in putting together this, you know, improved trusted workforce that we have here and the technology under MBIS. I think the hope is that we will be able to be rolling out more robust solutions and have better continuous vetting. But even with continuous vetting, there's still a very human piece in terms of as CV identifies things, making sure that we are in a position to hopefully address and mitigate issues to keep and retain people in our workforce, even that might have things bubbling up to the surface. But the more we can proactively address them, I think CV can help us do that and help have a you know a more secure workforce. I love what you wrote because you really talk about the human piece of all of this. So kind of talk about these human-based approaches. We obviously have the technology. We are going to keep the technology. The technology helps to enable better conversations for supervisors. What new approaches do we need to take in this system to help us continue to be technology-enabled but human-centric? Yeah, it's not so much that they're new approaches, but organizations have to avail themselves of best practices that already exist. And it's, it's more of a mindset shift because we get overly secure with the easy technological answers. It's very easy to say, I'll just buy a new user activity monitoring that's more thorough and feel that you're protected. And, you know, it's better protection, but is it sufficient protection? No. The biggest gaps and the biggest opportunities continue to be on the human factors side. So, you know, we really have to do a mind shift. We need to focus on humans over hardware and psychology over software. And it's not the quick purchase of of technology. It has to do with the things that are more complex and ambiguous about better training. You know, we have see something, say something policies, but often across all kinds of insider threats, everything from espionage, terrorism, vandalism, and even the non-malicious types, those see something, say something programs fail. And they don't fail because of technology. They fail because of the social psychology influences behind them. That will move from detection to earlier prevention. One of the favorite lines from the paper that you wrote was, you know, in your conclusion, insider threats are done by individuals and most can be prevented by individuals as well. Yeah. And just to add on to that, I can't emphasize it enough. Culture is more important than the policy. The policy is necessary, but the organizational culture is more important. There's a famous organizational guru named Peter Drucker who famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's when organizations were highlighting the need for good organizational strategy. And what I think the research has shown since he said that is it's become even more important. And I I could now say organizational culture eats strategy for breakfast, technology for lunch, and policy for dinner. It really is the basis of why things work well or don't work well. And that's where we need to to focus more on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lang, for being on the program. We will link to your paper, the seven science-based commandments for understanding and countering insider threats. And certainly check out the great work that Perserec is doing and across the DOD and IC community on providing information both to government and industry about addressing insider threats, because there are a lot more resources out there 
than there used to be. And that is a great thing and a great thing for both the government workforce, but also private sector and industry who also will benefit from these tips as well. So thank you again, Dr. Lang. Join the Northern Virginia Technology Council and the region's tech leaders on December 6th at Capital One Hall. NVTC's Tech 100 will recognize inspiring and innovative companies, executives, and next-gen leaders. NVTC's Golden 20s theme puts a modern twist on the Roaring 20s, bringing the glitz and glam to this festive night. Walk the red carpet and pose for Hollywood-style photos with our honorees. You won't want to miss the hottest evening of tech networking all year. Get your Tech 100 tickets today at nvtc.org. That's nvtc.org. Welcome back. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about hot topics in the security clearance world and uh, specifically sexual behavior. You know, Lindy, it's 2022. I think a lot of people have a little bit of a righteous indignation, I guess, about the the idea that the government may be prying into uh, things that happen in the privacy of our bedrooms. Uh, It's not to say that that indignation isn't well-placed, but at the end of the day, security clearances are a privilege. They're not a right. And the government does and can often examine these sorts of areas as part of the security clearance process, not because they really care what you're doing at home, although I'm sure there are the few uh, security officials out there who enjoy that. The reality is that a lot of these things can, under the right circumstances, be uh, blackmail issues. They can raise questions about judgment, reliability, and other areas of concern for a security clearance holder. So, We have written about this, I know, extensively on clearance jobs, but one of the things that I see come up in my practice with increasing frequency these days is the internet and how the internet and sexual behavior sort of are increasingly overlapping. I think the internet has created an outlet for a lot of people to explore some of the more out there or, you know, previously taboo areas of sexual behavior. Unfortunately, it's not like Vegas. The internet is not uh, confined to your computer. It, It does have a tendency to spill over into other areas of your life when you least want it to or least expect it to. And this is certainly one of them. So Lindy, I know you've gotten some rather entertaining or unusual questions about these topics on clearance jobs. Are there any that come to mind? Oh, I'm so glad you can't see me blush when we record these, <laughs> Sean, because we've talked about it for years. We tend to get you know pushback sometimes, like how you framed it at the beginning. Like, how is this a separate adjudicative guideline? Isn't anything within sexual behavior going to fall under some other uh, adjudicative guideline? The reality is in most cases it does. I mean, a lot of times people see if it's pornography at work, it's also misuse of IT systems, but that's true of every single adjudicative guideline or criteria out there that they are almost always working in tandem. So it isn't generally just sexual behavior, but there is a lot of sexual behavior that hits into other things. And eh, there are categories of sexual behavior related, again, especially with the open door of the internet that do kind of you know, conflate with other issues that are definitely relevant within the security clearance process in terms of reliability and trustworthiness and even issues of a lot of these online forums and different places on the internet these days that have these niche communities around niche sexual proclivities also have their own ties to 
a lot of other issues that the government does not want to be associated with or involved with. It just presents a lot of issues. I will say one of the more frequent ones lately that I can actually talk about and not and frame a coherent sentence around is the OnlyFans issue. I've gotten a ton of questions about that over the past two years in particular. I have, to my credit, mom, I had never heard of OnlyFans until somebody emailed me about it for work for the record. And then I had to search it on my work computer and then explain. I just had to know how to do the capitalization of the website. But yeah, I mean, because if you don't know, congratulations, but OnlyFans is a site where content creators, I mean, I thought that was me, can share their content for money. A lot of that content would fall under the sexual behavior adjudicative guideline. The way it comes up for security clearance holders, though, is less about the sexual behavior nature of what you're posting and more about the hiding income blackmail around what you're posting. It is often a thread. And if you pull it, what happens when you pull a thread? Well, oftentimes other things, you know, unravel. So in the case of, as you point out, for example, OnlyFans or situations where people are involved in fetish type activity and they're going out and maybe it's not the traditional definition of prostitution, but they are going out and, you know, advertising their services to do other things that have a sexual component to them. And, you know, that is income that's not being reported, for example. There are a lot of other things like that. I mean, I could go on and on. We've seen cases of, you know, people involved in swinging, cases in, of people who are involved in, you know, filming adult content that is on other, you know, platforms or in other situations besides OnlyFans, sexting, you take illicit pictures and you don't know where those are going to wind up. I mean, there's just so many scenarios that I can think of in situations where we've actually encountered these type of issues. And one of the things that often comes up from people is how does the government even find out about this stuff? You know, you fill out an SF-86, there's no questions on there about sexual behavior. Most people who sit through a background investigation interview will get no questions about sexual behavior. So how does this even a thing? Where does this come up? There are a couple of ways that it comes up. One is during a polygraph. There are uh, very frequently questions at the intelligence community agencies on the polygraph or during the uh, pre-hiring clearance process that ask specifically about sexual behavior, including uh, written questionnaires that we've seen at some agencies. We have seen cases where somebody has been reported by a colleague, ratted out by somebody who is angry with them or a jilted ex or former friend. I mean, all sorts of scenarios where you know somebody's been uh, unfaithful on the spouse, they've been involved in some other sexual activity, and that's been reported that way. And finally, we've seen cases where people have you know just admitted to it One of the common questions at the end of the background investigation interview, the standard questions is, is there anything we don't know about you that could be used for blackmail? And sometimes people will just blurt out, you know, sexual related issues. Uh, So, you know, these are all ways that it can come to the government's attention. And if and when it does, then the next step sometimes is, depending on the issue, a psychological evaluation. Sometimes it's additional interview to determine you know, if the behavior is continuing, who knows about it, i.e., is this or isn't this a blackmail issue? There's a lot of other things that can come out of it. But the unifying theme from all of these things is that if it is something that you, know, you wouldn't feel comfortable sharing with most people who know you, I think, you know, most of us would probably feel uncomfortable sharing details about sexual activity with with certain people, regardless of, you know, what it is, whether it's, you know, 
mainstream, quote unquote, or not. But if it's something that, you know, the government would look at and say, you know, you're going to have an issue sharing this with most people, then it is a blackmail issue that that would be cause for concern. You know, it's interesting because we have the two sides of it. Again, we get more pushback now saying like, hey, why is this even an educated guideline or criteria? I'm pretty sure there was a recent RAND report talking about kind of emerging issues for young people in the security clearance process. And one of those was related to kind of this topic of OnlyFans, pornography, the prevalence of all of that. And just, I mean, think about how recently online pornography has really blown up to become an issue and how that does introduce young people to a potentially a lot of content that might be illegal. I mean, we've covered a ton about Pornhub's kind of legal issues and status at clearance jobs and how a lot of these sites make it harder and harder to say that you haven't viewed something that was illegal in some capacity, especially if you have particular fetishes. So that was something, again, even that Rand report noted, like it's not necessarily an issue that's going away. Thanks to the internet, there might be potentially more issues. And from my perspective, we, we see it come up with folks, maybe not on the SF-86 per se, but certainly if you're applying for intelligence community position or going through that polygraph process, and especially you're you're one of those folks that has a heavy conscience burden, as you've written about or talked about, you start going through some of those questions and your internet search history might come back to haunt you in ways that you you would not like to. Do you have any advice for those people, Sean? If that's you, what do you do? I mean, are there ways to help mitigate that before you sit down for a polygraph or <laughs> just be good kids? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, so all of this stuff, there, there's a spectrum, right? I mean, like, most people would look at some of these things, uh, you know, that that are are becoming these fad fetish type things, and say, you know, gosh, that's unusual, <laughs> or that's outside the norm. I have to sort of restrain myself from going too far down this path because some of the specifics really are out there and, and are probably not appropriate for radio or podcast material. But you can use your imaginations and you know, suffice it to say, even I am surprised sometimes and I am rarely surprised these days given what comes across my desk. Those sorts of things where if a reasonable, ordinary person who is not a total prude would look at it and say, you know, that's really out there. It's going to potentially be a tough one absent going to counseling or some sort of, you know, therapy and being able to demonstrate that you've gotten a handle on whatever the underlying issue is. Again, I know there's a lot of subjectivity here and and some people are probably thinking, you know, well, who are you to judge? I to be clear, I'm not, you know, judging anybody, but the government is. So you have to look at these things, you know, through that you know, framework and that, and from the point of view of a reasonable, ordinary person, would, would a reasonable, ordinary person consider this to be out there and, and unusual or bizarre? And if the answer is yes, yeah, the only way to potentially mitigate it is to show that you've addressed it and you've gotten it under control. If it's, you know, a little tamer, if it's stuff that, you know, maybe it's, it's a little bit outside the, the mainstream, but it's not, you know, something that, you know, most people are going to cringe at or, or, you know, think is totally gross or borderline legal, you know, then it's a little more open to interpretation. I think the best thing I can say with this one is it's, it's very case specific, unfortunately, because there is such a broad divergence of the type of issues that we see. The best thing for somebody who is in this situation to do is to talk to somebody preferably an attorney so that you have confidentiality who is experienced in these issues and can tell you, all right, you know, here's my unvarnished assessment, whether you like it or not, about how this sort of thing is going to be viewed. And if, you know, the answer is, yeah, this is, this is out there, then maybe it's time to, 
get it under control or, or look for employment elsewhere. That's the reality, unfortunately. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.